Oh man, it is good to see everyone again. Um, Fred and I were gone at a conference uh, this past week, Acts 29 conference in Denver. Um, and I haven't been to one before, uh, so it was really cool to go and to just uh, see uh, what this church is a part of uh, at large. Uh, the fact that uh, we're a part of a network, Acts 29, that not only serves as a church planting organization for the United States and North America, but come to find out, I come to find out that all over the world, so there's like more than 50 countries where uh, churches who are a part of Acts 29 are meeting uh, this Sunday, which is really, really uh, encouraging to hear. Uh, so yeah, we were gone, and man, it is glad to be back. You know how good it feels to sleep in your own bed? Man, it feels amazing. Um, we're going to be continuing on in the book of Mark this morning, so if you could turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're going to continue on in the book of Mark. So um, last week and over the past couple of weeks, as, as we've been going through Mark chapter um, 11 and 12, uh, we've had this turn um, from Jesus with his ministry. So the first three years, and this is like the last couple of weeks, maybe months, as we're just uh, zooming in on the very uh, end of Jesus' ministry before the crucifixion and his resurrection. Uh, but the first three years, you have him going around doing miracles, healing the sick, uh, casting out demons, uh, raising people to life, and teaching his disciples all about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So now he's entered into Jerusalem. He's been met with praises from all the crowds. Uh, he's gone into the temple and called out uh, false religion in there in 11. And now we get to chapter 12 where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and a scribe, they go to him and they ask him these questions. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they go up to him and they ask questions that are um, antagonistic. They're not genuine they're just, the text says, they're trying to trap him. And then you have the scribe, right before we get to our text today, who's actually genuine. And he goes up to Jesus and he asks him like a question that is tenderhearted. He says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus is like, I see that you're not just trying to trap me. And so he gives him a good answer. And then, so this is where we find ourselves in the, in the text today, chapter 12, um, in verses 35 through uh, 44. So we're going to break it down and go one section at a time. So let's go ahead and read and start in 12, verse 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So here you have kind of like a, a turning of the table, so to speak. People go up to Jesus and they ask him some questions. Some are genuine, some are not. And now it's Jesus' turn. So then now he's asking the questions. Um, and what I love about how Jesus asks this question, and notice he doesn't give us an answer because I think he wants us to come to a conclusion on our own. But the way that Jesus asks this question, even though he has every single right to ask it in an antagonistic way, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, to try to trap them, because that's what they were doing to him, he doesn't do that. Here you have Jesus just 
finishing teaching about what it looks like to love God with all that you are and love others with all that you are. And I love that Jesus doesn't just say that, uh, but he practices what he preaches like we see him doing all over uh, the Gospels. So he says, this is the greatest commandment, love God and to love others. And here's the thing, to love others in this context is to uh, keep back the vengeance that he can have with his question asking and to trap the Pharisees and the Sadducees because that's like Old Testament, eye for an eye. You try to trap me, I'm gonna try to trap you. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, after they go at him, he turns around and he says, let me reveal to you more about who I am in a calm way, not in an antagonistic way, and to treat you, my enemy, with love. So he just preaches about it and now uh, he walks the walk of how he just, uh, of what he just taught. So this is uh, kind of an odd question in a sense without getting the background of why he's asking this and why he's trying to ask that question. And look at what he says. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he, he adds something. He adds Psalm 110. So the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, he's the son of David, so he's a descendant of David. But then he says, if he is the son only, then how can David say this about his son and call him Lord? You don't call your son Lord. Not in this culture. I don't know about you. I've never met anybody that calls their son or daughter, you know, Lord or queen. And especially back in that culture, where that kind of hierarchy of family was to be much respected. And I kind of get uh, where that is coming from. So I'm from Jordan, um, and I was sharing this uh, with Fred when talking about family background and how we like greet our parents and greet our grandparents. In Jordan, when you uh, have an elder, somebody in your family that's an uncle, a dad, a grandma, a grandpa, you go up to them um, and you place their hand uh, on your forehead, and you, and you bow. So that's a sign of respect in the Arabic culture. And then I remember one of my good friends in high school, uh, he's Filipino, I played basketball with him, and I remember going to his house and sleeping over all the time. And then uh, when his grandparents would come in, he would come in, uh, he would go to them and do the very same thing. And I remember talking it up with him, be like, dude, we do the same thing. <laughs> um, and so in this um, Middle Eastern kind of... Uh, this, this culture, it was very um, normal to place high value and high respect to your elders. So uh, for a son to be there and not only to not go up to his dad, David, for example, but for David to look down on his son and to call him Lord, man, that's something that's different. That's something that's unique. And notice what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that, hey, scribes, you're wrong. The son of David is in fact not the son of David. I love that Jesus doesn't rebuke in this instance, but he simply corrects. He says, you have this understanding, it's right, but it's not complete. So let me complete it for you. And he says, if he's the son only, how can then he be Lord? And he asks us this question for you and I, follower of Jesus today. If he is the son only, how can David call him Lord? And I love talking about this. Um, I love talking about this with our life group. Uh, we got to just 
uh, chop it up and be like, okay, he doesn't answer the question. I think he wants us to come to a conclusion. What does that mean? How can he be both son and Lord at the same time? Revelation 22 says that he is both the root descendant and, uh, I'm sorry, he's the root and the descendant of David. So he's both Lord and son. And I love that all of scripture is consistent in this and the only way that Jesus can be both Lord and son if he is the son of God. We get some really good, I love how John Kim mentioned that in our life group, some really good Christology, the, the theological study of who Jesus is. So we get his, uh, his human nature, fully man, and then we get his divine nature, fully God. That's the only way that he can be both Lord and son. And so he asks this question and look at what it says at the end of the text there in 37. As opposed to the, uh, to, the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes at large, who he's gonna hammer here in just a second. He, it says, and the great throng, it's a weird word, crowd, and the great crowd heard him gladly. So here you have uh, these opposing forces, these, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, who see Jesus coming up and gathering power and getting disciples and uh, becoming famous. And they see that and they're like, man, I want that. And so they're upset with Jesus. They're trying to trap him. And ultimately, they want to end up murdering him for a time being. And then you have this crowd who greatly receives him, who says, Hosanna, who in this text, when they say, hey, not only am I son, but I am Lord also, meaning that like their suppositions were kind of met with a different perspective than they initially thought, they could have turned off right there and be like, no, 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 that's too much. Like we get son, we get you come from David, but Lord, no, 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 only Yahweh is Lord. So what you're saying is you're on the same page and throne as Yahweh. And they could have right there and then just turned off. But because they have tender hearts that are open and they hear Jesus in spite of their presuppositions, that's why they're able to hear him gladly. Man, for us today, as Jesus is revealing about himself, about us, about his purpose, plan for our lives and those around him, when we hear Jesus and he says something that we did not expect and he does that all the time, amen? <laughs> Are we like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who say, no, 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 no. That doesn't work according to my will. Or are we in this instance like the crowd who hears him gladly? I hope we're like the crowd in this instance. And so we have the tender heart of the crowd at that time. Later on, the crowd's going to do something different. But, but here and now, the crowd hears him gladly as opposed to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And look at what Jesus has to say about the scribes in the next section. Verses 36, I'm sorry, 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. 
here's his conclusion. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus here has entered Jerusalem. He's coming into the religious capital of that nation and of that region. And as he comes in, what does he see? Hypocrisy. And as he comes in, what does he see? People in the temple who are supposed to be blessing the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and instead taking advantage of them. And so here he calls out the religious leaders of that time, and he has no soft words. He's not trying to masquerade behind a statement so that we could potentially expound on it and see the true meaning. He's crystal clear. The scribes, man, he says they devour widows' houses. Not only do they lift themselves up and give themselves lots of power and position and they have the nicest long robes, they got the Gucci Louis Prada of that time, but they do so, if they did that in and of itself, like, that's bad enough. You know what I'm saying? Like when I see pastors today, like we saw at the conference, we didn't see this on the conference, but him calling out preachers and sneakers. Is there anything wrong with that? No, I don't know. But when you see that kind of a thing, in and of itself, not good. But they were doing this, not only in and of itself, but at the very expense of the ones that they were commanded to sacrificially serve. That's how they were living out their lives. And that's how they were living out the so-called calling of God. And here's the thing, man. This is so important for us to look at, to hear, to observe how Jesus responds to this because he is, man, he's angry. He's upset. He's not calm about this. And in the other gospels, we have a whole list of woes. And Jesus goes down a line and calls out these people because of their hypocrisy and their false religion. He goes down a list. He says, beware of these people, these false teachers. He gives us a list of why we should pay attention to the outward behavior and then to their motivations, to their motivations behind that as well. And then he ends with, they will receive the greater condemnation. Man, this is so important because here's the thing. Like if I'm a Jewish boy in that culture, like, they didn't, they didn't just get there by accident. You know what I mean? Like, they probably grew up in the temple, went to synagogue, and then as they're going there, they see, what do they see? They see these dudes who have the best seats. You know, they have the best parking spots with pasture on it. They, <laughs> they see them dressed in these uh, just over-the-top kind of clothes, um, and they see them not paying attention to the people that they're supposed to serve. And so like as a, as a small Jewish boy, if you're seeing that, it has to be like a part of your motivation to be like, man, am I called to be a rabbi? And if even some of your motivation behind that is, well, I'll get to live like a pretty wealthy life. If that's even some of it, man, those people got their motivation all wrong. And they didn't just get there by accident. It's generational abuse of power. And so as they're coming up, like, well, why are you going to be a rabbi? Yeah, yeah I'm, going to, I'm going to go help some people, but man, they've got some nice houses. So I, I want that too. Man, they got some nice clothes. I, I want that too. Listen, when I, when I see that application for us today as 21st century Christians, I think about like vocational ministry. And I remember when I was getting into vocational ministry and 
I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really trying to get into vocational ministry. I remember reading like the prophets and like the New Testament of what Paul went through and what the disciples went through, what ultimately Jesus goes through. And the call is ultimately to joyfully suffer for the good of others, regardless of at what expense it comes to you. That's vocational ministry. You're not going to be liked. You're talking about opening God's word in front of people, me too, where our flesh hates this. Our flesh does not want to be transformed into the image of Christ. And the call is for all of us to look at this faithfully, gladly, joyfully, and to be made into his image. That's not a fun job. And so I remember the dude that was like encouraging me to be uh, in ministry at that time. And I talked to him recently and man, it's so sad to hear him say what he said. Cause he was like, he was trying to encourage me. He was like, Mo, you should, you should continue down the vocational ministry path. And I was like, Oh, why? He's like, this dude's like old. He's about to retire. He's like, man, like the last like 50, 60 years. I'm sorry. Maybe that's not old for some of you. <laughs> Fred's laughing at me. And, uh, and, uh, and he was like, you know, you should go down this path. And I was like, why? He was like, I just, over the past 50 years, it just, it hasn't felt like work at all. And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, it's just been so fun. And I was like, what, bro? What are you talking about? I don't see that here. Fun? I see people <laughs> losing everything they got being joyful as they're doing it because they know they're doing what Jesus did. So what are you talking about? So seeing this, like even today, even in my own personal life, it makes me really upset and I get why I made Jesus upset because people were taking advantage of the very people that they were supposed to serve. He goes on. As he just sees this terrible example of these so-called religious leaders, he then gets a breath of fresh air with this example that I think we need to capitalize and learn from, the widow. So it begins in verse 41 through 44. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in Two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Man, so this widow, let's, let, let's think about this. This widow, first of all, not only being taken advantage by the religious leaders of that time, but just being a widow. So here you are, you're married. You, you are in a, in, a, in a joyful state of life. You're in a stage where you, are gone, you, you have gone from leaving you know, the household of your parents and you enter into covenant with this guy and you think you're going to have a long life together ahead of you and then something happens to him. And in that culture, if you're a lady, you have to be dependent on your husband, on your brother, on your father, on your cousin, whoever it is. 
To me, I think if I'm her, that's the last of my worries. Like I just lost the person who out of all the people outside of my parents, I long for and I love the most. So that's what she just went through. And in that, where does she go? As she's supposed to, to the temple. Because the priests are supposed to take care of her. The priests are supposed to comfort her. The priests are supposed to pray with her, give her hope, point her to the scriptures and ultimately point her to God. And she goes to the temple and what do they do? They say, yeah, you've, you've lost your husband. Man, that's sad. Hey, uh, how, much, how much money did he leave for you, by the way? I don't know, like, this is, this is how much he left me. Why? Well, you know, um, madam, the word of God, it tells us that, uh, that we are supposed to, uh, to give to the work of the ministry for the building up of the saints and uh, uh, to do so well. So, um, you know, that money that he actually left you, that's, uh, that's, most of that is ours. So if you could, please, would you contribute to the temple tax? And that's what they were, he says, they were devouring widows' houses. So as she does that, as she submits to the local authorities, those abusers of power, she then has every single right as a victim, as a rightful victim. You know, we talk about in our culture today a lot, victimhood mentality, all those different things. Some people are legit victims. Some people are illegitimate victims trying to make themselves victims, and they're not. Here you have a legitimate victim. And in her, in that state, she has every single right to be like, how dare you? My husband just died, and you're supposed to give me money, and you're asking for my finances? How dare you? She doesn't do that. You're supposed to comfort me spiritually and instead, and maybe some of us will hear this, you abuse me for us in the church. How dare you? She doesn't do any of that. She walks away. She goes somewhere else. And her response to what she does here, which Jesus highlights for us to be an example of, is absolutely showcasing of her heart. Because she comes back, she doesn't say, me, my rights, this is what I deserve. But she goes to the temple with the very little that she has. That's the smallest financial uh, unit that they had in the Greek. Smallest financial unit. It's like a straight up two pennies. You can't even buy a loaf of bread at that time for that amount. And that's all she's got. And because of her trust in the Lord, because when she sees this, Messed up institution, as we see today, church, a messed up institution at times. She doesn't pay attention to the flaws of man like we can, but instead she entrusts herself to the one who is sovereign and good over all things, including that false institution. And so she chooses to go in there and say, you know what? I don't have to give this to you but I want to give this. And she gives all that she has. The text says everything that she had to live on. Because here's the thing. When you trust God, even when you've been wronged, when you trust God, even when you don't have much, when you trust God, you are willing 
to not understand where the future provision is going to come in your circumstance, but you look to him knowing he's in control of it all and you gladly give yourself for him if you trust God. And she does. She does. And, and this is an example of ultimately what Jesus does for him. Listen, if there's anybody who can claim to be a quote-unquote victim, it's Jesus. Who is there in all of human history that has lived a sinless life? I know not me. And then in that sinless life was treated like you and I, a sinner. That's a victim. And as he was being treated as a victim, as Jesus just taught here, loving God and loving your neighbor, he goes a step further in the other gospels and he explicitly says, what good is it if we love those who love us? Don't sinners do that? But I command you, love your enemy. And so he's able to, on the cross, as his very, very real at that time, enemies are putting daggers in his wrists. He's able to look at the soldier and say, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. And he's able to showcase that kind of a love to the very abuser that is murdering him, church. If there's anybody that can claim victimhood, it's Jesus. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. This poor widow, she can claim victimhood. She's got all the rights to. She's been messed with for this terrible people, and she doesn't. And ultimately points to the example of Jesus on the cross. Church, for you and I, today. Man, how freeing is it to know that Jesus has been treated for the sins that we deserve, was raised, and gives us the life that we do not, and now, out of joy and obedience to him, calls us in the very same way, give our very lives away, even to the people who deserve it the least, like this widow does, like Jesus ultimately does. So one of, and I say one of because there's so many uh, responses to this text. One of the sharing questions that I would uh, urge you to meditate on today is, what is it something that you have that's yours? It's yours. But for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of loving your enemy, even when you're being wronged, that you can give freely away. It's yours. You deserve it. Nobody can take it. Nobody could have taken this money from her. I mean, I guess the scribes could have like taken literally everything she had, but that would be stupid even of them because it's like, come on guys. You know what I'm saying? Like you've already robbed her enough. All right, we'll leave her with two pennies. She still had something that was hers. What do you have that's yours that you can give away? And here's the thing. Here's the kicker. Nobody can force you. Nobody can hold a gun to your head and say, do this. It's only out of the liberty of your own heart when transformed by the Spirit. That's one of the questions. And I would, for the sharing time today, I would, I would urge you look at this text at large. I, I don't want to just ask that question. I want to ask the question of like, how has this text, is this text speaking to you? What's your heart's response because there's three different sections that we looked at. The first one is the identity of Jesus. He's both God and he's both man. Maybe some of us have like looked too much to the divinity of Christ and we forget he's like us, he's human. 
and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what we go through, and he's able to give us the strength. Maybe that's what God is speaking to you today. The second portion, we see false teachers. Man, and do we see false teachers today too? Prosperity gospel. The Lord cannot outbless you. What is, what, is, <laughs> what, is, what is the text speaking to you today? In the final section of the poor widow, where she's got this much, not much, and maybe you don't have much either, but you're willing out of the liberty of your heart to give everything that you've got. And I love that because in the New Testament, we do not have a number, a percentage of how much we should give financially. You will not find it in the New Testament. All over the Old Testament, very specific. New Testament, can't find it. So, as people who are filled of the Spirit, we can ask two questions. How little can I give finances, time, love, and still get away with being a decent Christian? I think that's the wrong question. As people filled with the Spirit, the other question is, how much can I give of myself sacrificially? I think that's the right question. Instead of how little and get away with it, rather how much and be faithful to what God has called me uh, to do. So church, uh, would you pray with me? Uh, God, thank you for um, this text today. Thank you that we get to, man, learn, Jesus, about your identity, that you are both son and you are Lord, that um, you both, have gentle answers to those who genuinely ask you and you have harsh rebukes to those who claim to spiritual leadership who are just in it for the sake of abusing others. Thank you that we have you as our shepherd and our protector ultimately. And God, thank you for this example of this poor widow who in every instance has every right to complain and be bitter, but she does not and rather freely gives of herself for you and your glory. Would we learn from this and be more like this widow? We pray this in your name. Amen.